be wrong, I can't go on and on. Saying fast to keep you wrong, I can't keep you from home. But I'm saying fast to keep you wrong, I can't go on and on. Saying fast to keep you wrong. Indeed, I've just been setting fires as well as I can. Here we go. That was an echo. Freedom is what every American wants. Freedom is what our nation stands for. Freedom always comes at a price, they say, and the price is to remove those chains. For the past three years, I've been kind of like instructing, giving you tidbits of information, actually revealing the instruction manual of how to take away people's freedoms, what the tools are and the methods, how they implement them. Because just like in any war, there are scouts. And those scouts, oh, you know, many might say, well, if you know, just say it. You can't. Because it'll only fall on deaf ears. It'll only fall on deaf ears. Remember how I talked about Whitaker and how temporary placements of persons are done in order to take the trash out? Many times we've talked about this. Kind of like what we saw with Grinnell. It's like... Snow is coming down, information, snowfall? <laughs> All in the center, just cleansing everything away, laying down all this white blank canvas. You can't tell someone, you have to guide. You know, a lot of people talk about bakers and bread, right? Well, what is the ultimate dough or bread or tiny morsel that someone can provide to you? It's called information, right? Because then you know how to bake, right? Because you know the yeast, the flour ratio, if you want to use yeast, right? And help that rise, right? And the reason that I've been giving this to you is to open up your eyes to what is happening. The seeds that evil plants in your mind, hoping that you speak it and believe it in speaking spells, spelling spells, speaking things into reality for them. If you consider bread information, then what we have is a battle of bread. <laughs> Almost biblical, I guess. I'm here to just guide you in this mess. And I say this with the outmost love. I am holding back so hard, it's not even funny. <laughs> it's not even funny. It's very hard. One thing I want everyone to understand is, imagine if you had all this information that you know of today, to your knowledge today. I want you to envision yourself four years ago with that information right in front of you. You would have dismissed it. You would have Look the other way and say, conspiracy theory, jizz. Ah, uh, nope. See, that's the thing. We grow with knowledge. 
We learn to see, we learn to hear, and we learn to compute things. The information that I put out may resonate with you and may not. If it does not, then you haven't listened to previous shows. Then there's the people saying, well, you know, I just found you. Well, then what does it say to you? If you found me now, that means you already understand what I've been talking about before. You can't just hear someone. Your ears have to be able to hear that frequency of information. So much disinformation, so much disinformation, so much disinformation. And many will say, well, this person loves President Trump. They're loyal to the president. <laughs> it's not supposed to be loyal to the president. The, pre the president represents the people. It should be loyalty to the people. We should be united, not divided. We should be sharing information, not sequestering information. So many people are telling you that they are leading you. You do not need any leader other than God, okay? The Lord is leading all of us, okay? You need to understand that. It is His time, His plan, His execution, His everything. But there are people that can show you the toolbox that evil has because they've had it in their hands. They can show you how to identify it. Remember when Newsmax came on to the scene? Oh, look, Newsmax. Newsmax always been there, right? But I've also said use caution. Not because restraint is needed, but because you should always take everything as if you're watching it from the moon. Now, boy, space, it's a big conversation on its own. And it's not one to have when you can't even explore your own and understand your own community. You want to know about the stars and what's beyond and how new continents are being discovered at a suggested rate. <laughs> you can't have that. You must understand that we are the news now. There is nothing that these television channels will tell you that you don't already know. Did anyone bother to watch Biden's town hall, which was a complete scripted discussion? Absolutely not. Did we see the highlights? Those of us that trolled the internet? Yes, we have. How were they? Horrible. They looked terrible. Made absolutely zero sense. What we must remember is just how things come into fruition and how things in retrospect make total sense. Think of it this way. We know that the Democrats, the, now we're only speaking of the Democrats, even though we know the Republicans are worse, okay? They're worse. The Democrats always wanted to control those in poverty. Always. Are you needy and poor? Come to me. I will save you. Are you needy and poor? It's racism. They're discriminating against you. Come to me. We talked about demagogues and how they create something out of nothing. They invent it in order to foster those that, that have nothing to lose according to their standards, right? To their standards. What happens when the Democrats lose that minority group, the Black American population, those that are in poverty, right? What happens when they lose them? What happens is you get a real leader on the White House, like President Trump. Because if you notice, yes, there are still those in the minority that loathe anything that's not Democrat because they were raised like that. Oh, my, my, my family, we all just vote Democrat. It's for the people. Yeah, let's just go and do it. 
you know, those that are brainwashed and don't take a step back. But the majority of that has gone away. And now you're seeing who the real voters of the Democrat Party are, the corporations. See, they had you believe that the Republicans were all about corporation. Yet, who is the one backing them? Who is it? It's the corporations. So they can't control the black American population. They can't control the Latino population. They can't control those that are in poverty anymore. Therefore, the true sustainers, amplifiers, voters of the Democrat Party are actually the one percenters. <laughs> See how that works, how they manifest? They manifest their true colors, true backers. And that's why the corporations pander to the ideologies and the fake racism and the fake disparity and the fake issues that occur. Think about it. Hey, Black Lives Matter, we're going to pay a ton of millions and millions of dollars to support anyone that has it. Look at us. We're promoting only Black American companies, a Black-owned companies, Black-owned business. Look at us. Look at us, the corporations. We're totally doing this. But yet still they didn't vote. So the corporations become more aggressive. Again, who votes who? Whoa, well, this way. Who is the voting base of the Democrats? It's the 1%. You see how that works? The 1%. The people that the Democrats think they're fighting are the actual ones that they are promoting. It's so incredible, isn't it? When it all comes into picture and focus, how the Democrats don't really have the people's vote, but they have the 1% vote. They have the 1% vote. Today's February 17th. And it's a, it's a bittersweet day. Very bittersweet day. And he knew that it was coming. Bittersweet day. A lot is happening for us. But another person joined heaven today. Someone that we know. Fought a disease as hard as he could. And succumbed to it. It's, it's sad. But he's actually the lucky one. Think about it. He knows what's coming now. He sees it. You have to think about that. Pretty, pretty devastating um, to hear his passing, right? Rush Limbaugh passed, and he no longer is suffering. Let's just, um, let's just take a moment. Well, a lot of people are saddened. Um, and you shouldn't be. You're saddened because you feel selfish that he's not there with you. Um, that's basically it. This is how you should see death. Yes, it makes us sad because there's no access to that person. But remember, it's not being here that is important. It's after you leave what you leave behind. And that should be every individual's goal. And yesterday, we went through one of those individuals who left a legacy. So let's take a trip down memory lane quickly and listen to this legend when he was discussing interpreting the law. 
Later, the clerks came into him and said, Justice, you need to hire your fourth clerk. And he said, I did hire my fourth clerk. And they were outraged that he would have hired um, someone who was not of the party. True story. Um, if he says so, I, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, it did not make as much an of an impression upon me as it did upon him. I'll put it that way. Well, how many clerks have you had since oh, I've had four times, uh, 26 on the Supreme court and, uh, on, on the court of appeals, what, uh, five times three. So it's, it's a lot of clerks. But the real issue here though, is how often have you hired a clerk that doesn't think like you do? Uh, infrequently, but not never. Um, the, the problem is, uh, I, I don't, I don't care what the policy preferences of the, of the clerk are. In fact, uh, other things being equal, I would prefer a clerk whose instincts, whose policy instincts are the opposite of mine. But <laughs> I find it very hard to find a liberal clerk who is hard-minded and not wishy-washy, who applies rules of law rather than speculating about what the best result would be and so forth and so on. That's, that's not what I do, and I don't want my clerks to do that. When I have been able to find a, what should I say, a, f a flint-minded liberal, uh, as, as in the law clerk you just saw, uh, they have been invaluable because, uh, you know, they come at, the, come at the problem from maybe from the opposite uh, social perspective that I do. And uh, they're, they're a check upon what a judge always has to worry most about, and that is uh, that, that instead of applying the law, he's, he's really just applying his own, his own uh, wishes. That's, that's bad, bad judging. When I earlier read that line about uh, every lawyer, every citizen concerned about uh, how the judiciary can rise above politics, those are actually the words of Frank Easterbrook. And the reason I bring that up is that uh, if you look at Frank Easterbrook's brother is Greg Easterbrook, who we see right. dealing with ecology. Why is he your forward writer and how long have you known him? Oh, I've known Frank a, a long time. Uh, we were colleagues on the faculty at the University of Chicago in the, in the, what, in the 80s. Uh, he went on to be a judge on the Seventh Circuit, the chief judge uh, of the Seventh Circuit, ultimately. And uh, he he wrote the forward because if if there is is one other name, one other judicial name associated with the the, the two principal uh, theories of this book, textualism and originalism, it is Frank Easterbrook. He is. And, you know, and if, if, if I had to pick somebody to replace me on the Supreme Court, it would be Frankie. And I tend to see, uh, see things uh, the same because we're both applying the same principles of textualism and originalism. Political scientists, he writes this, political scientists, editorial page writers, and cynics often depict judges as doing nothing other than writing their preferences into law. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Oh, I, that's certainly, certainly true. Political scientists, editorial page writers. What do you think of editorial page writers? You read them? To understand all is to forgive all. I, they have to sell newspapers. 
They tend to judge judges incorrectly, as I told you earlier. I doubt whether they read the opinion carefully and see what sections of the statute are involved. They, they have a gut reaction. This is a terrible result. Well, sometimes it's a terrible result because that's, that's the terrible statute that Congress wrote. And the rule, uh, you know, the rule for a judge ought to be garbage in, garbage out. If you're dealing with an inane statute, you, you, ought, you are duty-bound to produce an inane result. So a lot of those editorials are just knee-jerk um, opposition to, to the consequence, not, not a, a dispassionate, intelligent assessment of the process of interpretation that the judge went through. One of the prior justices of the Supreme Court. Listen, I have to add, too, that if an editorial writer or even even uh, an article writer did what I've just recommended, went through and described to the reading public, oh, the case consisted of this section, 323B, little i, and it had to be reconciled with 523, you know, if he went through that, he would lose his readership in no time. So I am not at all surprised that, uh, that the newspapers uh, tend to um, evaluate a case simply on the basis of whether the result seems like a good result or not. That's, that's really all the reader is interested in. The reader is not interested in the rest of that stuff. Well, then let me ask you about something that um, along those lines, uh, you know, we prepared for your this interview. Your people at the publishing house told us there were all kinds of rules that we things we couldn't ask you about you can ask me anything at all i I, I just i won't answer a lot of stuff oh i know but one of the things we four years ago when we did an interview we talked about uh, bush v gore right and i know you don't want to talk about that again but let me just show you some video from an interview you did with piers morgan when he asked you i mean he asked you everything that we're not supposed to ask you and you answered everything that we're not supposed to ask you did i do that yes you did that I want to show you this clip. Oh, I'll ask me again. Now, <laughs> here's this, let me just show you this. <laughs> right, what has been, in your view, the most contentious? What's the one that most people ask you about? Contentious? Well, I guess the one that, uh, you know, created uh, most, uh, most uh, waves of uh, disagreement was Bush versus Gore. Mm. Okay. That comes up all the time. And my usual response is get over it. Why is it? You went on to explain further on yeah, on that, and, right. and we did it four years ago. I they the tell you you couldn't ask about. I didn't know that that was yeah. the guidance. Well, we're used to that. We get that all the time. Well, no, I mean past cases that. Uh, yeah. Okay. I don't mind asking. Ask me about Bush versus Gore. I don't want to talk about Bush versus Gore. You've already answered it here. I, I don't but, either. But <laughs> <laughs> why? Why was? Judges have tenure, you're it for life. Why does everybody worry about things they say in public and not having cameras in the room and all that stuff? Why are you so sensitive about it? I'm sensitive about it because uh, uh, judges judges ought to express their views on the law in their opinions. Everything I had to say about the real legal issues in in Bush versus Gore was set forth in in the opinion that I joined. Um, beyond that, uh, I'm, I'm just either repeating myself or or adding things that 
really were not the basis for my uh, for my decision. And and I also don't like drawing the courts into the political maelstrom uh, uh, by you know having their uh, opinions uh, repeatedly uh, pawed over. Uh, especially the controversial ones. Why not, though? I mean, that's democracy, isn't it? Well, I, I don't mind the people pawing over them <laughs> between themselves, but I don't think it's the role of the judge to uh, uh, give an account of himself to the people. You know, it's the tradition of, uh, of common law judges not to reply to press criticism. You know, we, we get clobbered by the press all the time. I can't tell you how many wonderful letters I've written to the Washington Post <laughs> just just for my own satisfaction and then ripped up and throw, thrown away. You don't send them. You don't send them. That's, that's the tradition of the common law judge. You do not respond to criticism. So why? Why is that? It's, it's because what the judge has to say is in the judge's opinion. Your biographer, I know you didn't choose, but Joan Biskupic and David Savage and others sat around at the end of the term and talked about you. Here's Joan Biscupi talking about you at the end of this last term. At the end of his very first term, the 80, uh, in 86, October 86 term, uh, in 87, uh, for Morrison B. Olson, nine minutes of him complaining about where the court had gone on the uh, mm. independent counsel statute. Uh, other memorable Scalia defense, uh, Romer V. Evans, the gay rights case out of Colorado. Uh, he, uh, he does have one just about every term. Vintage, and it was, it was, Interesting, though, the idea that he would go outside the record and complain about President Obama's order on um, young people who had brought, been brought here with their, their parents uh, illegally and un, are undocumented. And he did get a lot of a lot of really negative press on it. In fact, I think a couple of people even suggested he should step down. But frankly, I think uh, he will still be doing what he does. She's right about that. You will be doing what you do. But what about the <laughs> Can you explain? What's this going outside the record stuff? Uh, that was at the end. We have innumerable cases in which we cite newspaper articles. Innumerable cases. There's, there's no rule. That well, let's look at Joan a little bit. So now that you've got a little bit of Scalia telling you about how he feels about the press and how he feels about people watching things and knowing things, I want you to... Um, see what um, Joan, just this introductory, I guess, um, into her. I just want you guys to get to meet this woman who was his biographer a little bit. So we're going to travel back in time to two years ago. And um, we're at the Brennan Center for Justice, where she speaks. Here to moderate. Joan has covered the Supreme Court for 25 years and has written several books on the judiciary including a biography of Justice Scalia. And she's currently working on a biography of Justice John Roberts. We are very honored to be joined by two such um, incredible giants in the field. And so I, without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to you for a real interesting evening. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. And thank you all for coming here. And thanks, Rick, for giving us this uh, great opportunity to talk about one of my favorite justices too. As Wendy said, I'm actually now writing a book about the chief justice. And I would say rarely does a day go by when I think, ah, I'd like to be writing about Justice Scalia again. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was so interesting and accessible. And I ended up having uh, 
12 on record lengthy interviews with him. And I like to tell the story about how he first agreed to this because it tells you a little bit about his personality, a personality that certainly Rick will uh, reveal for us today. Uh, when I first started working on my book that came out just about a decade ago, uh, he said, you know, you can talk to all my friends, you can talk to the justices, but I don't really want to talk to you at all. I don't want to help you with this enterprise. And I said, you know, just, just be cool. We could, you know, just wait and we'll see. And I happened to run into the justice at a wedding. I should say that we do not, we did not run in the same social circles, but we had one friend in common and that friend happened to get married. So I ran into the justice at a wedding and at a wedding, of course, we're not carrying, you know, multiple tape recorders and a big bag and pen and paper. And he was drinking a lot and we were drinking and I, and I said, he asked how my research was going. And I said, you know, I've been to the archives in New Jersey, tracking your parents when they first came over here. Uh, you know, doing a lot with your father. As Rick knows, his father was a professor of romance languages at Brooklyn College. And I said, Justice Scalia, I, I found the very first time that your father was mentioned in the New York Times. And it might be of interest to you that it was when he won this prestigious fellowship as a very young man to study over in Florence and Rome. This was, he had come to America not knowing any English and then ended up getting his PhD at Columbia. And I said, and in 1934, he won this great honor. And Justice Scalia, always the man who would one-up anyone, said, yes, but did you know I was conceived on that fellowship? And I said, no amount of research would ever have gotten me that. So uh, we, will, we will now learn about what he then did uh, after little Antonin Scalia, uh, born in March of 1936. So we're actually on his uh, 82nd birthday month here, uh, what he went on to do. Uh, and we're happy to have um, Rick with his new book that you, oh, here. We're going to be holding up at intervals. <laughs> um, and I thought I'd start first, you know, with a basic question of all that you could, all the things you could be writing about, Rick, you know, with your, with your very heavy workload, nine justices, other retired justices. Um, why Justice Scalia? Great question. Let me first say thank you to you, Joan, for making the trip uh, to come here uh, and to the Brennan Center and to Wendy and Michael and the staff for putting this together. You've been a uh, very gracious host to me now for a third time, and I, I appreciate it. And especially given so much that's going on now, it's hard to just keep track of all the news of the day. You, you know, got on the subway and Thad Cochran had uh, announced his retirement. You know, everything's moving so fast, so it's nice to take a moment back to reflect. Uh, so, so where did um, the book come from? So about five or six years ago, uh, I came up with a book project that I was going to call the Scalia Court. And it was going to be about how Scalia was uh, the most influential justice. And I showed it to some people and I thought about it and I felt like it didn't work. It was, it was, it, I didn't really capture the justice and what, what I was trying to do. And so I put it aside, ended up working on uh, the, the other books that I ended up writing. And... Um, uh, I, I was just so fascinated with Justice Scalia. I thought he was the most interesting person on the court, and I thought he was influential in very important ways that were not really captured by traditional measures. So I wrote to my uh, our friend and my then dean, Erwin Chemerinsky. Mm. I, I sent him an email uh, one weekend morning, and I said, I'm going to pick the Scalia project back up. Do you have a little bit of time for me to pick your brain? And he wrote me back an hour later and said, the justice just passed away. It was that day, February 13th, uh, 2016. And so I said, now I've got to write the book. Um, and so um, with, you know, that chapter closed, to kind of take a reflection and ask, I know in 50 years how people are going to look at justice. They look very different than it does today. But 
how do things look a few years out? And I wrote the book not only, it, it's not a biography. In fact, the best biography of Justice Scalia, as I say in my, on my opening page, is Jones' book. It's kind of an, uh, a biography of his ideas. And so it's not just about what he did, but about what his influence is going to be on the Supreme Court. And my pitch is, I think, that uh, he may be more influential in his death uh, than he was when he was alive. Okay, so let's talk about the idea and because I... All right, so as you get it, this guy wrote a book about um, the late Justice Scalia. But... Um, wrote a biography about his ideas and how in death he's more influential. Now, Joan wrote the original biography that was in-depth, in-depth of uh, Justice Scalia. But she also wrote another book. Did you know that Joan is a legal analyst for CNN? Well, I think it's very important that we uh, listen to her speech, her interview, I guess, about Supreme Court Justice Roberts. This will be quite interesting for many people. Give me a moment. Let me get this up for you. Here we go. Joan Biskupic. She is a full-time CNN legal analyst. Before joining CNN, she was editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters and Supreme Court correspondent for The Washington Post and USA Today. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Explanatory Journalism in 2015. She has written several superb Supreme Court biographies, including ones on Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Antonin Scalia, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She's now written a book that she will sign after the show, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Please join me in welcoming Joan Biscupe. <laughs> Thank you. And somehow it's fitting that not only did I talk to Jeff only just about two years to the day about this book to kind of explore some theories, but it was at the founding of this center that I started working on Sandra Day O'Connor's biography because she was here to christen the center in what, like 2003, something like 2004. that? 2004. And, and, and you remember, of course, what happened when the proscenium fell and Justice O'Connor audibly said, we could have all been killed. I know. I remember <laughs> that very well. Yes. And I remember thinking this was worth the train trip. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, I started the book in 03 and so it was 04. That's yeah. right. So, so the, the Constitution Center where I've talked about my previous books yes. somehow is always good luck for me in the biography world as is Jeff. Wonderful. Well, uh, it's mutual and here's an invitation for your next one uh, when okay. it comes out. <laughs> but we have so much to talk about sure. uh, for the chief and I want to be uh, the thesis of this really illuminating book is that there are two conflicting strands in the temperament and judicial philosophy of John Roberts. On the one hand, there is the conservative who ever since he worked in the Reagan administration, really ever since he was at Harvard Law School, has had a uh, conservative view of the Constitution, which has sometimes been at odds with the reigning liberal orthodoxy. And then there's the institutionalist, the chief who was so devoted to the institutional legitimacy of the court that when he took office, he said that he hoped his chief justiceship would be remembered for a focus on institutional legitimacy and who so importantly and significantly voted at the last minute to hold the Affordable Care Act because of a concern. Institutional images, meaning giving credence, this is in complete opposition to what we heard Scalia talk about the Supreme Court yesterday and even today. 
The Supreme Court is there simply to be the voice of the Constitution. And as an institution, it does nothing else. Legislation is not made through the Supreme Court. It is made through Congress. So they're telling you exactly who he believes he is. Wait, let's get to the part that I want us to get to. Hold on. Here we go. They're going to uh, provide Latin and Greek and calculus and all the uh, pre-college classes that they want for these, these kids, many of whom were children of Bethlehem Steel executives. And John Roberts, at age 13, realizes that's the school I want to go to. He was encouraged by some of his teachers in grade school. And he writes to the headmaster and he says, it's Mr. Moore, and he says, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumiere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd. And I feel like the competition at La Lumiere will force me to work as hard as I can. And he goes on about how he, wa- he thinks this will all pay off when he goes to college. And then he closes by saying, I'm sure that by attending and doing my best at La Lumiere, I will assure myself of a fine future. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education. And the first time I saw that full letter was when I stopped by there on this Saturday and one of the faculty members said, oh, well, come on in. And I always like to look at the library. So they've, you know, immortalized his letter of wanting to be the best. Give goodwill in terms of some of the discussions, but in terms of the law of the land, I don't think that this plays out, but it does play out in a very human way. So let's unpack it because it's so crucial. Uh, Tell us more about the healthcare decision and the votes that he changed. And then uh, assuming that he changed his vote because of his concern about the institutional legitimacy of the court, which appears that he did, wouldn't that just uh, inspire uh, resentment and anger from both sides because they didn't like the compromise that he struck that wasn't, would the charitable explanation be that the resentment was a necessary consequence of his institutional? Yeah. Yes, yes, except for the timing and the way he went about it. You know, because, okay, so they vote. We have this historic three days of oral arguments back in March of 2012 over President Obama's major domestic achievement, this this law, the Affordable Care Act, that was signed in March of 2010. So that's all you needed to hear, Obama's major achievement and how they convinced him to change his mind. It had nothing to do with Malta, of course. Now, why am I showing you this? Because it's going to be all very, very important in the coming days. We realize that the Senate means everything from the impeachment trials. The House is very important. I mean, it is. But keep in mind, the House by no means has any impact on investigations that are still happening. Investigations still happening. Wait, do you think that it's done yet? We're not done yet. We needed to do this by the book. Now, for those of you that, um, you know, get your news wherever you get your news, I don't know if you know, but Barack Hussein Obama is having a lot of meetings out in Asia. Yes, indeed. And it is rumored that President Putin will be meeting with President Trump. You have to ask yourself, why is Barack Hussein Obama traveling to the Far East? I see. See, right now, two two presidents. The one they're telling you and the one that is. The one that is president is the one that the people listen to. 
trust your president. Only trust your president. And I say this, huh, I say this as well as I can. Because he will speak to you and tell you what you need to know when you need to know. He needs to be quiet just a little bit. Obviously, I can't keep my mouth shut, but he does. And that's because he's busy. Here's a letter he wrote to the people. On this show, last night, I laid into Mitch McConnell big time. I was so upset and angry over that speech he gave on Saturday on the floor of the Senate, blasting President Trump so unfairly, it raised so many questions about Mitch McConnell, his integrity, his loyalty. And we spent uh, a good chunk talking about the swamp turtle last night. That's what we called him, the swamp turtle. Well, guess who agrees with us? The president of the United States just put out a lengthy statement about Mitch McConnell. You know, we can't read his tweets anymore. I'm sorry. Did you hear that correctly? Shoot. Did I just hear the president of the United States? That's right. That's right. Because who decides who's president? You do. Not Amazon, not Walmart, not Google, not CNN, not Seidel, not NCC, not Dominion, not Nancy Pelosi, not China, not Russia, not Europe, not the UN. Who decides who's president? We do. We're the news. We decide. We say. Nobody else. I mean, I didn't see any President's Day parades for Biden, did you? So he has to do it kind of the old-fashioned way, putting out lengthy statements through his office. This one is a doozy. Going to read it to you in full. It just came out. This is from the president of the United States, former Donald Trump. It goes like this. The Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at its helm. Leaders in quotes. McConnell's dedication to business as usual, status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality, has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority leader, and it will only get worse. The Democrats and Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle. They've never had it so good, and they want to keep it that way. We know our America First agenda is a winner, not McConnell's Beltway First agenda, or Biden's America's last agenda. In 2020, I received the most votes of any sitting president in history, almost 75 million. Every incumbent House Republican won for the first time in decades. And we flipped 15 seats, almost costing Nancy Pelosi her job. Republicans won majorities in at least 59 of the 98 partisan legislative chambers. And the Democrats failed to flip a single legislative chamber from red to blue. And in Mitch's Senate, over the last two election cycles, I single-handedly saved at least 12 Senate seats, more than eight in the 2020 cycle alone. And then came the Georgia disaster, where we should have won both U.S. Senate seats, but McConnell matched the Democrat offer of $2,000 stimulus checks, checks with $600. How does that work? It became the Democrats' principal advertisement, and a big winner for them it was. McConnell then put himself, one of the most unpopular politicians in the United States, into the advertisements. Many Republicans in Georgia voted Democrat or just didn't vote. But 
And because of their anguish and their inept governor, Brian Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger, and the Republican Party for not doing its job on election integrity during the 2020 presidential race. It was a complete disaster in the election in Georgia and certain other swing states. McConnell did nothing and will never do what needs to be done in order to secure a fair and just electoral system in the future. He doesn't have what it takes, never did, and never will. My only regret is that McConnell begged for my strong support and endorsement before the great people of Kentucky in the 2020 election, and I gave it to him. He went from one point down to 20 points up and won. He quickly, or how quickly he forgets. Without my endorsement, McConnell would have lost and lost badly. Now his numbers are lower than ever before. He is destroying the Republican side of the Senate and in doing so, seriously hurting our country. Likewise, McConnell has no credibility on China because of his family's substantial Chinese business holdings. He does nothing on this tremendous economic and military threat. Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. He will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse making America great again and our policy of America first. We want brilliant, strong, thoughtful, and compassionate leadership. Almost done. Prior to the pandemic, we produced the greatest economy and jobs in the history of our country. And likewise, our economic recovery after COVID was the best in the world. We cut taxes and regulations, rebuilt our military, took care of our vets, became energy independent, built the wall and stopped the massive inflow of illegals into our country and so much more. And now illegals are pouring in, pipelines are being stopped, taxes will be going up and we will no longer be energy independent. This is a big moment for our country and we cannot let it pass by using third rate leaders to dictate our future. That from the office of the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Wow, huh? And that's the only president that matters. That is the only office that matters, right? That is the only office that matters right now. <laughs> See, back in 2019, the Democrats realized that everything they had built over decades was annihilated. It was destroyed. The sky was falling. Therefore, they concocted a new plan. With their labor unions, I was telling you about Amalgamated Bank. In 2019, I wrote so many articles so you can see the money coming in because I already knew their plan. Why didn't you just come out and say it? I wasn't going to tell you. I was sending it to who needed to see it. Now, if they got it or not, that's another story because every time something like that was blocked, guess what? Another clown ousted. So. I was writing it in the nicest of ways. Look, we have wiretaps. Look, amalgamated bank. Look, the money laundering. Look, this is just like BCCI. Look, look, the sky was falling. So they concocted the new plan. 
And that was a plan to control the people by fear. Fear always works. <laughs> oh, does it ever. Fear, 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 fear. If you can give fear, you can gain control. Did they not fear you? Were you not scared? You thought stepping out of your house, you would die. <laughs> you thought the world was over. And yet, that final attempt to regain control through fear backfired. People are seeing the truth now. Hmm. And it was then when we saw little placeholders we had everywhere, almost like they got the signal, ooh, let's go, let's go, let's go. And that's what's up. Suddenly discussions about this and that, tit and tat, were gone. Suddenly the focus was just on, oh, we hate Trump and we're all going to die. That's it. Like I said, I'm not here to tell you what's happening. I'm here to give you instruction, to give you guidance, to give you their toolbox so you can understand. Did the seed not plant in your mind that you may die? Bats, laboratories, China, 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 China. The whole world, dead bodies being ushered. Graves being dug. People being arrested. They're already at Gitmo. Trust us. You see, that's not how you gut a swamp. You don't do it like that. You let the people see it. And I am telling you, you're going to see Brennan and Clapper perp walk. They can delay. They cannot avoid because nothing can stop what's coming. Now, sometimes I have to admit Regardless if I place my information on various modes way in advance, it's a guideline for all of us that are here doing our part, doing our part. Ah, oh, I really wish I could fast forward to the really fun parts because nevertheless, earthly bound I feel the turmoil. I feel the distress. You know, I get more frustrated with the anger and the self-righteousness and the, you know, desperation that I hear from people and see. I mean, look, news now. Oh, look, CNN paid Sullivan. Look at us. We're the news. We broke it. And it's like, guys, weren't we here on January 8th talking about how they paid him to get a lawn chair? how he was working with the mainstream media. Didn't, weren't we talking about it just days after the whole event? But you know, everybody else is the news, of course. Uh, and they're telling you, oh, if someone tells you that some things are not the way they are and maybe they were hijacked or maybe this or maybe that, don't listen to them. There are only a few of us that know. How the hell do you know what I say? And with what right? It's like someone saying, don't listen to what the Bible says. Listen to how I interpret it for you. Because there's only a few of us that know how it is. That's not, not equating the two to the Bible. But, hey, you can't change words. They are what they are. 
You can't change facts. They are what they are. Interpreting. That's why we're in this fucking mess in the first place. Because people want to interpret things. They want to decode the Constitution the way they see it. Because, you know, it gives them clicks and likes. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. The people want direction. They don't want you to tell them what's coming. I'm already telling you guys. We already won. Calm down. Six years. I told you that. People are like, but that can't happen. It's only four years. Six years. Now, the two, how? Hmm? I told you before he's out, all of the justices except for one will be replaced. I've said that. I've said that. I have said that many, many, many times before. You know, the thing about people that talk in whistleblowers, is that they think that they're covered because throughout time, throughout this past, these past two decades, I've seen a lot of whistleblowers come forward. Tons of them. One whistleblower I kept my eye on for a very long time after finding an OIG complaint. I studied that person. Ooh, they don't seem too nice. Ooh, they take no prisoners. Ooh. They have one problem. They see it only from their eyes and nobody else's. But in the core, they're righteous. They don't seek to hide behind a nation or a company, right? Kind of like Snowden. What did he do? He ran away, right? And did his job like he was supposed to, to run away, create this. Remember the movie, right? Movie tells you exactly what you're supposed to know. Okay. And so they ran away thinking that pff, Brennan's people were going to, what, protect, love them. Dude, you're good as dead. You're lucky that the people are still brainwashed and can't see afar from that. And while many people say he's done great because he, he showed the light, he needed to show the light so that they can get their shit done. That was the point. Because what he did was, you know, the three-card Monty. Look over here. They're doing all this while he's implemented the twinning of the stream. <laughs> it's like they didn't care that you saw it because they're still taking your information. So what? So in 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 more, I guess, advanced or Snowden? Are, are you a Snowden? Are you? Nah, man. Shadowgate just pulled the shadow out of the darkness and slapped it in everybody's face. Bigger than that. Oh, it's like a Brady and Tori are like the second Snowden. <laughs> Please do not compare. A traitor turned patriot, turned traitor to patriot, traitor patriot to people like Bergie or myself. I myself am simply an instructor. I blow whistles. Oh my God, that doesn't sound good. I'm going to take that back. But as most of you know, facts are facts. You should not be hiding behind any corporation, any agency, or any nation. What you should be doing is providing truth and letting truth protect you. That's the fact. Truth will always protect you. So you have to think, why isn't Snowden protected if he gave the truth? Hmm? That's a question you should ask yourself. Truth will always protect you. Truth is always 
at the forefront. Truth will never let you down. Truth will never, ever, ever kneel. Now, it may be skewed and thrown with mud, but that just washes off. Nothing sticks. Truth, truth, truth. So it was in um, 2019 where we were having conversations in January and then in February. I was talking about Don Lamont, right, of CNN, how he orchestrated this whole Jesse Smollett thing, knowingly and willingly putting out false information. <laughs> That's going to be real important right now, covering up for deaths in nursing homes, knowingly and willingly, knowingly and willingly. But it's not willingly. I need my job. Still a choice. Still a choice. Just because you talk BS on the TV or the radio or in your print, you know, because you want your job does not excuse it. You're still liable. You knowingly and willingly did it. No one forced you to put out fake news. No one forced you. Remember, you have to listen back to that episode with Jesse Smollett. I, don't, I think it was in February where I really broke it down, where I was like, look, Don Lamont said, I spoke to Jesse while he was in the hospital and we were such good friends. You mean he was your butt, butt buddy, right? Tap that ass, right? That's it. That's what's up. That's facts. And so he promoted Jesse Smollett's story to Good Morning America and everything crying. Oh, I'm so, uh. and it's like Kamala Harris, the auntie, Cory Booker. Both of those were actually pushing a lynching bill in January. And Jesse Smollett brought the lynching with the rope and the bleach into the forefront. Oh my gosh, coincidences. There's no such thing as coincidences. And that goes both ways, both good and bad. Come on, come on. <laughs> when is it mathematically impossible to say it was coincidence? Hmm, let's see this. Let's go to what people claim are the news. I want you to listen to what they say. Maybe Donald Trump's next move. <laughs> let's see what their forecast says. President Donald Trump is celebrating his second impeachment acquittal after the trial ended on Saturday. Uh, the former president hinting about his political future, saying in part, our historic, patriotic and beautiful movement to make America great again has only just begun. I look forward to continuing our incredible journey together to achieve American greatness for all of our people. And joining us now to discuss is Newsmax analyst and former advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump, Dick Morris. Dick, we always love having you with us. And of course, Thank my you. first question to you always is, have you uh, spoken with the president uh, or with anyone who knows how's he, how he's feeling now that this in second impeachment attempt is over? No, I, I last spoke with him over the weekend, but, okay. not, not, but before the vote. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that he... Uh, is now going to pick up where he left off, which is to be the leader of the opposition. And I think what you can look forward to now increasingly is commentary, not about the election, but about the stuff since then, what Biden is doing, his proposals. I think he's going to be sharply critical of the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus package when the economy is bouncing back because of what Trump did without Biden getting us further into debt. I think he's going to be uh, attacking the teachers union for saying they won't go back to work until they're paid 
what is an effective bribe of $128 billion that's in the stimulus bill. Uh, I think he's going to have a lot to say. Uh, Dick, I'll come to you because we, uh, much has been made about President Trump getting a larger, robust support from African-Americans and the Latino community. But when you really break down the numbers where he had the most erosion was from that core constituency that put him in the White House, those non-college educated white voters. He got 64 percent with the first time he ran. That number dropped down. What do you think that President Trump is going to do and the party needs to do to make sure that they can claw back that winning coalition? in the coming years. Joe, uh, I would question those, that, that polling number because they're based on exit polls. And when you have mail-in voting, you don't have exits, you know? Sure. Everybody stays at home and they vote. And the, uh, the projections, both of black and Latino and of white high school people, uh, are really fanciful. They're really estimates. Uh, they're no better than a poll. Uh, because you're basically just calling people up and saying, did you vote? And they say, yeah. And you say, who'd you vote for? And so on. And that's just like a poll. Right. The advantage of exit polls is that you're actually catching them as they're leaving the voting booth. You don't have a sample of a thousand. You have a sample of about a million. So uh, this is really flawed. I do not buy the narrative that he slipped among high school graduate people. You know, Dick, I... Uh Kevin McCarthy went down to Florida, met with the president to talk about 2022. The president said that he is going to participate and help the Republicans uh, win back both the Senate and the House. But we know now that there were seven senators who voted in favor of impeachment. I think one of those uh, seats is up for re-election outright. Two of the other senators who voted have now announced that they're going to retire, but their seats will be up for grabs. Uh, what do you think the president will have to say about that and how will he participate? Well, Murkowski is the immediate question. Right. Her term is up, thank God. <laughs> and I think we have a significant chance of replacing her if she chooses to run again. The problem is that Alaska does not have a runoff. It has this weird system where everybody runs, regardless of party, and the top four run it off against each other. Let's talk about Alaska. Do you remember during our elections that Alaska stopped counting votes too? At the same time, Michigan did. At the same time, Wisconsin did. At the same time, Pennsylvania did. At the same time, Georgia did. I'm just, why did no one see what's going on in Alaska? Or did they? Or did they? Because see, how many times did I say, guys, what's going on with Alaska? There's 10 people there. Why can't they count votes? Why did they say, okay, we're going to shut it down now. We're not counting anymore. We're going to resume tomorrow. <laughs> what happened? What happened? What happened? Hmm? What happened? That was like, oh, yeah, we're turning off. Wait a minute. You guys are like so many hours behind us. Is it nighttime again? Is there like a Bob Evans senior special that you're all running to? Why'd you stop counting? Crickets. But let's talk about Alaska. Let's see what he says. And the first, first place winner among those four is elected whether or not he or she has a majority. Hmm. And in that situation, you're probably going to have two Republicans, a Democrat, and Murkowski. And she may end up with a plurality. So one of the priorities is to get the Alaska legislature to change the law to provide for a runoff in Alaska. And that effort is underway now, and I think it'll succeed. Oh, let's change things in Alaska right quick. Which point I think it's bye-bye, Lisa. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, Dick Morris have to leave it there. Thank you as always. Yeah, because Alaska was going to vote her back in. Stop. Stop. And as if we're going to use those machines again. Stop. Stop.
stop. So let's just go to a quick intermission before we shift gears. And I'll show uh, the video of the song we'll be playing, which a lot of people like and ask for. I mean, it's really important you pay attention to what this video is showing you and telling you, of course. The more you pay attention, the more you see, the more you watch it, the more you realize. Fill up those coffee cups. He's out of this world, the current commander of the International Space Station, about to break a big record tonight. Here's ABC's Gio Benitez. They call it the Peggy Factor, mission control's code word, the way superstar astronaut Peggy Whitson always gets the job done. I love it up here. Tonight, Commander Whitson making history with her record for any American. By the time she lands in September, her tally will be 666 days. 666 days in space. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. could turn the page and time that I'd rearrange just to fail to close my close my close my eyes then I couldn't find a way so I settled for one day to believe in you Tell me, tell me, tell me lies Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies Oh no, no, you can't disguise You can't disguise Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies Well, one thing I have always done is tell you who I am. And I have made it clear that people like me don't exist. I mean, they say the devil's biggest trick is to convince you that he doesn't exist, but you're also convinced that other things don't exist either. And that's the problem, that we don't seem to understand the true tools that we actually hold, the weapons cache that we have access to. And that's because... <laughs> They tell you so. So I thought today we'll go back uh, to uh, something that we talked about, the Uroboros Code, where the snake gets, eats its own tail. And we're going to go into and delve into the science of it just a little bit, because the theory of everything is basically what we've been doing here for years. Now, you might say, but it's political. It is. It is, but what does political really mean? Do the policies of your nation and those nations of the world not dictate your future, your outcomes, your existence? There are other people that tell you who you are. I saw a video floating around today uh, in the Telegram channel where uh, someone showed how it takes three minutes um, for someone to become a leader and that in fact it's the first person that follows the person that is a leader that's erroneous see that's erroneous what was being demonstrated was groupthink right it was groupthink influence groupthink leadership 
He's not having followers, but fellow leaders. Followers are what dictators have. That's basically it. The theory of everything, right, or um, the philosopher's stone, or all these mysteries that everyone would like to know the answers to are already there. The answers are already there. You're just not able to see it. And if I can help in any way, it's through showing you from the events of today, the events of yesterday, and with a little bit of guidance, to see that you already have the tools in your hand. All you need to do is see it. Now, how does that play out for us? Well, for those of you that have been listening and learning about history, about slight little events that occur, and how those nudge things, nudge things in the way they want or however they want, <laughs> it's, um, it's pretty interesting. I, um, for example, Rush Limbaugh passed. Today it was announced that he, was, that he passed. Trending with him is Michael J. Fox. Why? Because it was um, the guy who um, insulted him, right, or mocked him, passed. Do you see how evil works? Do you see, do you see how they do it? This man passed, and so there is sorrow. But he passed, and therefore we have joy. Because he attacked this person at one point. Now, by no means was Rush Limbaugh a saint, and by no means did I agree with everything he said. I will tell you that I agreed about maybe 20% of everything he said, because all he did was report and reiterate. And as he grew older, he was more seasoned as a human to be able to have a better perspective. But of course he made mistakes. But the evil is there. I want you to be able to see it. I see it every day on my Facebook. When I'm on Facebook and I watch family and friends saying things, and I'm like, dude, you supposedly go to church every Sunday. The reason there's a church and the doors open is because of you. Yet you are filled with vitriol, hate, and just slanderous words and, and envy and, and disgust. How can you have puke in your mouth and speak the words of God? You can't. <laughs> That's the devil's finest work. That is the devil's finest work. By no means am I a saint, man. I am a huge sinner. And you know, the one priest that I met, Father Stacy, he's in um, uh, St. Elizabeth's in Indiana somewhere. Um, you know, he would always say with his prayer whenever I'd be over his home, uh, you know, and we'd eat, he'd say, I'm such a sinner. And, and he was the priest. Because he understands that his mouth isn't gospel, that he's learning just as well as you are. His job is simply to um, bring the people together, speak the words, and hope that everyone finds clarity in it. 
That's basically the job of every person. Only very few do it with such humbleness to open up their doors and have them in together, right? <laughs> I'll tell you um, a discussion. This totally. So I've told you guys that I, I, I went to Israel at one point in my life and I worked at a kibbutz, which is kind of like socialism on steroids, right? Basically, you work and I was picking fruit like off of trees you work to have food and shelter. That's basically it. Okay. I'm just saying. And um, it, my, my last name is Maris. That's my um, family's name. But uh, because I'm a female, the S isn't pronounced. It's Mara. Right. And I remember, um, you know, a fellow Italian um, who shouted out my name down the field, you know, he was trying to pronounce my full, full Greek name and could not. But he started screaming out, Mara, 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 Mara. And I was like, what? And they were like, who's the teacher? Who's the teacher? That was one of the first old Hebrew words. Um, Mara, Mara is how it's pronounced, Mara which means teacher, but with the precision of like Artemis with an arrow. And it was like, how am I a teacher? I can't even reach the trees. Guys, I was like the most useless person on that kibbutz. I kid you not. I would literally bribe taller people with cigarettes. Okay. I would, but I was very good at coordinating how we could put that all together um, faster. I was useless, but I was very good at coordinating the baskets, very good at coordinating, um, how people were going to pick the fruit and picking the right trees. So that way the amount of fruit picked was the goal of the day done faster. So I was the scout that went out and I was like, all right, we're going to hit these lanes and this is how we're going to do it. And my job was to walk up and down and make sure that all the baskets were empty or full. Um, and I self-assigned myself that job because I was vertically challenged at five feet. You're not going to pick much fruit. And there was no way I was going on those, <laughs> on those um, ladders that were held together by like, you know, wire and um, basket weave stuff. Just saying. So, I mean, I did pick a lot of fruit and I would, you know, use the rake a lot. Um, but I remember that was one of the first um, words that I was taught on, you know, in the kibbutz was mora, which was, uh, you know, teacher, teacher. And I was like, damn, so they've like self-proclaimed this little short chick that I was there for whatever reason I was there, but I also participated. And <laughs> I got a pretty, pretty awesome neck tan too. Um, so anyway, going back to it. So I guess maybe teacher, <clears throat> something that I always wanted to do was, uh, like I always said, was be a nun. I wanted to be a nun because uh, I didn't like people. Uh, and I loved teaching, um, yet I was never able to. So Sharing knowledge is something that I was very excited to do all the time. And this is probably why I was so successful, even though it was working for not the good guys, in, in, in brainstorming meetings. Because when we'd sit down and, and, and devise a plan, 
it was like all of us were learning from each other and directing each other and instructing each other. And obviously the, the, the burden came to the person that would actually put together the best ideas and directive and, and, and put together the game theory. But, you know, the game application of the theory that we had of what strategies we need to take. But I can tell you this, I have never learned more in my life than it is listening to people have conversations about a topic, have conversations. And I know mostly in my two hours of a show, it sounds like monologue, but we're really having a conversation because I may not have time to respond. I don't. Like on my emails, I'm like a month behind. Um, with everything that I am doing right now, I have like no time. I, I probably, I kid you not, <laughs> caught myself being, I'm going to pen in the time that I'm going to take a shower, pen in the time that I am going to use the bathroom and wash my face. Um, and that's, even though time is slow, I, I feel that it's escaping my fingers as we approach spring. Because it is, it's spring. And in those 90 days of spring, that we will see the, uh, the, uh, the blooming of what we have been sowing for four years. Remember I told you olive trees bear fruit, good fruit, every four years. Every four years, the good fruit comes. Doesn't mean that it's not going to fruit every year, but the really good fruit comes every four years. So you will see that blossoming and, and therefore that's, uh, that's going to be exciting. So moving along, let's get into a little bit of the Urovoros Code. And for Claude Shannon and the computer scientist, it, it, it was that if there is a lot of pattern present in a string of symbols, there's actually very little information in it. Whereas if there is a lot of information present in a string of symbols, there's actually not so much pattern there, but there are patterns anyway, because otherwise it's not really informational. Did you guys understand that? And let me explain it. That's a very important statement. If you see a lot of information with a lot of patterns, then there's no actual substance. If you see a lot of information with no repetitive patterns, there are still patterns and that's full of information. Just let that percolate. We're going to revisit that in about a month or so. Now, there is a very interesting development in physics these days, which is called digital physics. This is a terminology coined by Edward Fredkin, and he also speaks about digital philosophy. And it, sh it is shown that there are many processes in reality which actually appear to be encoded by a binary code. The Dutch physicist Verlinde showed that if you cover a sphere with ones and zeros, you can mathematically deduce Newton's law of gravity from this. And he is not the only one. We have John Archibald Wheeler, of course, but we also have Konrad Zuse, we have uh, von Weizsäcker, we have Sissi, Wolfram, Techmark, uh, 
van het hoofd met zijn holographic principle. Hij beweert dat de wereld is een kind of holographic projection of a kind of binary code. And we have James Gates here in the top right corner. Now, James Gate studies string theory. And string theory describes all the subatomic particles which make up the whole of the material world and also the particles which are used in uh, electromagnetic radiation, such as photons. And what did James Gate discover? He discovered that buried in the equation of string theory, there is a binary code, a computer error correcting code. So the whole material world, all the subatomic particles are somehow described by a binary computer error correcting code. That's freaky, that makes us think of the film The Matrix. Are we living in some kind of computer simulation, one could ask? There's also something more interesting here. In my previous talk, I told you, well, if we apply our scientific method, we can never get further than interpretation because we always need empirical observations. And even if we do deductions, our deductions always have a premise. And the premise, for instance, uh, all men are mortal, is based on an observation. We never saw somebody live on forever. But here we have uh, perhaps a more solid foundation for knowledge. Because if we can mathematically deduce the whole of the physical world and all the laws of physics from the interplay between digitality and geometry, then we really have a solid foundation for knowledge. But there is a caveat here. We must be careful because what we are doing at this moment is still a little bit of abductive reasoning. The fact that the grass is wet doesn't necessarily mean that it has rained. The fact that we now have found that certain laws of physics can be deduced mathematically from the interplay between geometry and digitality does not necessarily mean that all laws of physics can be uh, found in that way. But the evidence is mounting over time, so this, this becomes more interesting and, and interpretations such as we might be living in a computer simulation, or the world was made by God mathematicians, and become more uh, yeah, attractive. And of course we would like to know, is this world real, or are we just encoded by uh, some information? And therefore we must see, uh, to seek if we can answer the question, can information exist without having been encoded by something above us, by a higher society or higher developed entities? Can information exist in and out of itself? And in order to answer that question, we first have to answer another question. Can anything exist at all without informational content? Let's do a thought experiment. That's a pure nothingness. And now we want something to exist. Now the Latin word existere, which is the et etymological root of the English word to exist, actually has two parts. Ex, which means out, and sistere, which means stand. So it means to stand out. Now in order to stand out from an otherwise homogeneous background of nothingness, there must be some kind of difference. 
isn't it? Already by having a difference, we create two states. So we create already the basics of information, of, of binarism. And there is a very interesting experiment in physics, which is called the Casimir experiment. And you have two uh, electrically charged plates. And between those plates, uh, you make a vacuum. And then it's shown that from the vacuum, spontaneously, subatomic particles like electrons sprout into existence. Whoa, that's a strange thing because from Shakespeare we knew that nothing shall come from nothing. And yet here it appears that it does. Well, in fact, a vacuum is not a real nothingness. The vacuum is still filled with electromagnetic waves. So then we must ask ourselves, how can electromagnetic waves configure themselves so that they can stand out from an otherwise homogeneous background of waves? And that is possible because we have to make a little jump to wave dynamics. And as you may know, if you throw two stones into a pond, they make these circles around themselves. And at a certain point, these circles start to overlap. And then at certain positions, they start to reinforce each other. You indicate it with that maximum intensity. And at certain points, they start to cancel each other out. Here indicated with blue, minimum intensity. And then you get this kind of pattern. So this is a constructive interference pattern. Now, there are even more interesting constructive uh, interference patterns, and they are the so-called standing waves. And this is what happens when you plug a string on your music instrument. And when you hear a pure tone, this is because exactly a whole number of uh, waves fits exactly on the length of the string. Now in string theory, string theory is our candidate for a theory of everything. And string theory was also encoded by some binary code, the particles. String theory describes all the subatomic particles. And in fact, these subatomic particles in string theories are, let's say, circular strings which are in a kind of resonance where we also have a standing wave and this resonance occurs when exactly a whole number of waves fits on the length of the string whereas if it doesn't exactly fit you don't get a particle so somehow subatomic particles can come into existence if the wave somehow falls back onto itself and, and matches so as to form a kind of resonance pattern and this is very interesting because all subatomic particles therefore have wavelengths and they have a certain uh, amount of waves and they have a certain amplitude. So they are actually numerical entities. They are informational entities. Um, and uh, this reminds me of a symbol from alchemy, which is the Ouroboros. And here we get perhaps a link towards consciousness. Now the Ouroboros uh, was a symbol of a snake who bit itself in its tail. And 
it was usually interpreted as uh, being symbolic of the eternity and also of uh, the cyclical nature of reality. But it was also a symbol of consciousness because the snake didn't know when it saw its tail that it was part of itself. So it was exploring that tail and he thought, hmm, nice piece of meat that he bit in it. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, he jolted and, and he realized, oh my God, this is part of myself. So he became aware, he became conscious. And what we have in our subatomic particles is also something like that. It, it is the snake that bites itself in the tail and thereby forms a kind of self-sustaining, self-generating feedback pattern. Keep that in mind. Now, in many religions, it's often suggested... Hold on. I want you to understand that concept and how it works into string theory, because this is an argument that I have with many great minds um, that I am working with. Many of them are quite pessimistic. But if you take it as it is, right? Consciousness can only come when you are aware. And once you are aware, you can resonate. The tail, chasing your tail, the term chasing your tail, this is exactly it. Humankind has been chasing its tail. It is an endless loop resonance. We're going to talk about gravitrons. I told you that I'm going to explain to you what my theory is about gravity and how gravity isn't what you think. Because in the apps, oh, you know, I'll introduce it. Urovoros means to eat one's own tail is not in itself a circle. Because a snake does not intertwine in a perfect circle, but usually in the shape of a sideways eight of infinity, the infinite loop of chasing your tail. It is only when you grab onto it that you realize that it was always you, right? So just listen to how he puts this together. This is, this is the theory of everything, the so-called philosopher's stone, the answer to all that no one's been able to answer. And the only person that can answer that is you when you finally bite your tail. That, that the, the theologists say that, that God exists completely outside of the physical world. There's nothing physical about God. God is purely metaphysical. But we have just seen that in order to exist, we need to stand out from a background of, of nothingness or a, a somehow homogeneous background. In order to exist, there must be a difference, there must be some information, and that is always physical in a certain extent. So a god which is purely metaphysical and has no physical component seems to be something difficult to understand to me. Now, we may have explained uh, the material world in terms of information with these self-generating, self-sustaining feedback loops of the subatomic particles, but what about consciousness? We still haven't explained that. 
And the interesting is that there are a number of uh, philosophers and scientists who have suggested that consciousness also involves a kind of self-generating, self-sustaining, self-referential feedback loop. And one of those philosophers is Douglas Hofstadter. Perhaps you have read the book Gödel, Escher, and Bach, uh, which is one of his books. And he uses a drawing from Escher where two hands draw each other into existence to explain this more or less paradoxical idea of a self-generating, self-sustaining, self-referential feedback loop. And also Giulio Tononi, who has the leading theory on consciousness these days, with his integrated information theory, he believes that if information is integrated in a feedback loop manner, that's when consciousness is involved. Now that's not such a strange thing, because for instance, you see an object somewhere and you want to know what it is, and you don't clearly know what it is, so you focus your attention on it, and the information comes back from the object, and light pulses go into your eyes, into your brain, and in your brain, features are analyzed, they are integrated, and when a match is found with the mental concept you already had, when the features match, there's an integration taking place, so there's feedback from the object you wanted to observe, and it, the information loops into a mold uh, of the concept you have in your mind. And when that fit is made, recognition occurs, and then you become aware of the object. But you can go further than that. Not only can you be aware of the object, you can then also become aware of you being aware of the object. So you're aware of your object awareness. That's another loop. And then you can make yet another loop, and that is being aware of your awareness as such. And every time you make such a loop, you become more focused and you have more attention. It's actually a kind of meditative technique. So perhaps it's not such a strange thing to suppose that consciousness involves also this kind of self-generating, self-sustaining, self-referential feedback loop. Perhaps we can even turn it Let's talk about those feedback loops and just see how important feedback loops are. So do you know how you, your body regulates the temperature? It's through positive or negative feedback loops. How does your body know to release you know, insulin from a feedback loop? How do you know, you know, as a woman, that it's time to have that time of the month? It's from a feedback loop. It's all communication looping back together. It's feedback loop. Oh, I mean feedback, positive feedback, negative feedback, 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 repetition in a circle in order to conclude one cycle and enter into the next, which is it's constant ongoing. Now, I want you to take this statement that many physicists have said throughout eons. The universe is expanding. And I want you to take that into the context of yesterday. I pulled a little bit of my pants down right there. Um, remember how I said, oh, when was Australia discovered? How do they discover continents? How do they expand our localized universe? I want you to think of that. Ever so expanding. Who dictates that expansion? If indeed 
let's play a pretend game. The Crown had decided not to acknowledge the existence of Australia. Would you know of its, of its existence? If indeed no one had crossed the ocean blue in 1492, would you have known of the existence of North America? The point is, you know only what they tell you. You have the information of what you are allowed to have. The information that feedbacks to you. Your eyes see a computer screen, a television set, a phone. Because you have been programmed to see a phone, a television set, or a computer screen. We should get back into that old episode I did on the Tesseract, but that'll be another time. That would be way too close to home and revive a lot of childhood memories. <laughs> but the point here is, I want you to think of these things. Feedback loops. And how you would have never known the existence of certain places, things, items, objects, if someone didn't tell you they existed, if there was no information on it. So again, information is key. Data is key. If I were to tell you that we have the ability right now to have invisible airplanes, would you believe it? I don't know. You haven't seen it. I mean, that's the whole point. They're invisible. But I did show you the tools, the elements, the process, and how you manipulate lights on those materials over the past two weeks. Therefore, you already know that the possibility exists because I've given you the weapons cache to create that object, per se. So how much information out there is it that you already attain yourself? That if pieced together like epigenetics, finding the right building blocks manifests something that you didn't believe existed. Electricity, salt, niobium, says someone on Trovo. Correct. And what was it that we described in perpetuating energy? Hmm? In order to do that, see, with the niobium, we were able to change the color with electricity. But what was it that we demonstrated can push a lot of power through in liquid form that can mask it, hence give it that mobile illusion of constantly changing? I've mentioned that. All the things that are there, yes, momentum. So what would give the momentum to that inert material called niobium to change? So, see, there are so many things out there that already exist that if put together correctly, it's like Legos. 
right? Get the Legos. You can create a plane, a ship, you know, a building, a house. All the Legos are there. You just don't have the blueprint to make it. So let's talk about quantum gravity. And this is actually from the U.S. Department of Energy. It's quite an interesting video. And I want to see, and I'll be checking the chat to see if anyone can come to their own conclusion of what they believe that fifth element that is so-called gravity, which destroys any idea of all the physics we have in quantum mechanics. But in essence, it's the only reason it's destroying it is because they're doing it wrong. One of the things I like about particle physics is its ability to describe the behavior of matter under every experimental condition we've ever investigated. We call our very successful theory the standard model of particle physics. I made another video that describes this incredible theory. While the standard model covers most of the known fundamental forces, specifically electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and the Higgs field, this model says absolutely nothing about the force that literally binds the universe together, the force of gravity. The reason for this is simple. Gravity is incredibly, ridiculously weaker than the other known forces. On the size of, say, about the size of the atomic nucleus, the other forces all have kind of sort of the same strength, with the weak force being about 100,000 times weaker than the strong force. Now that last statement probably sounds kind of silly, because 100,000 sounds like a big difference, like comparing something oh, four inches tall to uh, Mount Everest. But gravity is unfathomably weaker still. It is about, wait for it, a hundred thousand trillion 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 times weaker than the strong force. That's like comparing the tiny proton to the size of the visible universe. It's a huge difference. Since gravity is so weak in the quantum world, there is no chance that we'll ever see any effect due to gravity in a particle physics experiment. In fact, if all we had to go on was the data from particle physics experiments, we wouldn't even know gravity existed. The reason that we know of gravity is because it has an infinite range and in up to size scales of the Milky Way or even clusters of galaxies that we can see it works basically like Isaac Newton predicted 350 years ago. It takes the mass of asteroids or planets or stars to see gravity at all. But I don't want to talk about the gravity of the big, which is the domain of astronomy or cosmology but rather I want to talk about the nature of gravity in the realm of the very small. But I just told you that at sizes comparable to that of a proton, gravity is very weak. So what the heck am I talking about? Well, gravity, even if weak, must apply in the microworld. Now, that's not a very profound thought, but it's true. And since our best theory of gravity is Einstein's theory of general relativity, the most obvious thing to do is just apply that theory to the subatomic realm. As an illustrative example, let's imagine an electron orbiting a nucleus. If you do that, you find that Einstein's theory predicts that the electron would lose energy by the emission of gravity waves and then spiral down into the proton. A similar prediction using classical electromagnetism led to the invention of familiar, or at least well-known, quantum mechanics. This same chain of reasoning suggests that gravity must also have some kind of quantum nature. Another reason to suspect that gravity must have a quantum nature is because A, we definitely have a quantum theory for the other forces, and B, 
General relativity is a classical theory. It is impossible to seamlessly wed the quantum and classical theory, and this is taken as additional evidence that there should exist a theory of quantum gravity. Otherwise, we'll not be able to write a theory that accurately describes everything in the world of the very small. So, if we accept the idea of quantum gravity, what do we know? Well, there are some basic conclusions we can make that are true for all such theories. One such conclusion is that there should be a particle called a graviton. In just the same way that a quantum theory of electromagnetism predicts that a photon exists, quantum gravity predicts that a graviton should exist. Now, we've never seen a graviton, which means that you shouldn't believe in it. But, if it exists, in order to agree with both Newton's and Einstein's theory of gravity, the particle must have certain properties. To have gravity's infinite range, the graviton must be massless. To be only an attractive force, the graviton must have a quantum mechanical spin of two, which is different from the electron spin of a half and the photon spin of one. The graviton must also be electrically neutral. So this all seems pretty simple. The theory predicts a particle with very specific properties. So it would seem that the next step would be to go out and find it. I mean, my colleagues and I do that sort of thing all the time, right? Of course, the problem is that gravity is so weak. And because it's weak, it's essentially impossible to make a graviton and a particle physics experiment. To all intents and purposes, there is no chance that we'll ever find a graviton, even using the accelerators we might imagine building with the technology of 100 years from now. There is one small possibility we might see a graviton someday soon. Before he continues, now let me refer to something that I've told you many a times. I've explained to you that you are not a solid, right? You are not a solid. You are a mashup of millions and millions of cells that simply resonate at the same frequency. And they gravitate toward your core where you are outlined. They gravitate toward you and you create those boundaries and you manipulate the shape. And you'd be like, Tori, if you can manipulate your shape, then why aren't you doing it for real, right? Like, I need to manipulate my shape to, like, take off 50 pounds of cells. It's all about frequencies. All about miscommunication. This is where disease comes in. This is, you know, that's, that's a whole other show and topic. But I want you to understand this. With this in mind, I want you to picture that one single element, that one atom sitting somewhere in the middle of your chest, hypothetically. And suddenly, all of these other atoms come together. Tons of hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus. They all bind together. And they all gravitate to that center which is that core, that, that initial energy, that gut. And then they create this boundary. So I want you to think of gravity, the concept of gravity, and then take that. Your center core, attracting, holding, and creating the shape of your self and what you put out. 
because you're not truly a solid. In fact, did you know that you have more bacterial cells? You're made up of more bacterial cells than you are of human. I mean, that's another story too. But again, I want you to think of that. When you think of gravity, think of your gut attracting all the cells to make you. Kind of like in the movies when you see when people like pixelate and they disappear. It's like poof, from the center, they explode. Or as all the particles come in, they come into one point and create the person. I want you to think of that as you listen to what else he says. But that's only if the universe is much different than it appears. If the universe has additional tiny dimensions beyond the familiar three, it's possible that we might find gravitons and even possibly find massive gravitons as well. But this possibility is dependent on these small extra dimensions existing. Frankly, while it's possible, it's a long shot. If you're interested, take a look at my video on the idea. So, getting back to the more basic idea of quantum gravity, has there been any theoretical progress on the subject? Well, yes and, and no. There have been a couple of quantum gravity theories proposed that are kind of successful. And by successful, I mean that they're still possible. One is superstring theory, which says that the very smallest building blocks of matter are actually very tiny strings. This theory has been very popular for many years, although some have criticized it for not making testable predictions. If you're interested in the idea, check out my video on the topic. Another idea that's been floating around for a while is called loop quantum gravity. The mathematics of this theory is pretty complex and goes by the confusing name of spin networks. But the basic idea is that there is a smallest quantum of space and time. Now this is a pretty bizarre idea. It means that unlike ordinary sizes in which you can cut an object a meter long into two objects half a meter long, when you get to a certain size, you literally no longer can make smaller objects. The physical dimensions of the smallest space and time are too small to test in particle physics experiments, although they might have some testable consequences in observations of very distant astronomical objects. The jury is still out on these studies, but so far there is no evidence that confirms these ideas. So there is no confirmation of quantum gravity, but if the idea is true, it has some real consequences that will change how you think about such cool things such as the center of black holes and the universe right before the Big Bang. If you have even a casual knowledge of physics, you've no doubt heard that scientists think that before the Big Bang, all of the matter of the universe existed in a single mathematical point with zero size. Similarly, the center of a black hole is said to hold all of its mass of the parent star compressed to zero size. These tiny concentrations of enormous mass are called singularities. And singularities are unphysical. They don't exist. If a theory predicts them, then that's a sign that the theory has been pushed hard beyond its limits. Now, I don't, I do not want you to think that this means that black holes don't exist or that the Big Bang never happened. Nor do I want you to think that huge concentrations of matter in tiny, tiny volumes aren't real. All of these things really exist. So don't send me some anti-relativity email. But what I am telling you is that as matter gets compressed into smaller and smaller volumes, the gravity becomes more important and the theory of quantum gravity starts to dominate. Quantum gravity is what protects against a singularity. 
And what this really means is that we will never understand the details of the beginning of the universe or the center of a black hole until someone works out a theory that blends gravity and quantum mechanics. So I hope that this conversation gives you a sense of the complexities involved in a quantum theory of gravity. Realistically, solving this problem will take a long time. Mm, actually, I think uh, this problem is already solved, and many of you probably understand it too. And you don't have to be a quantum physicist. I mean, how many times have you projected yourself? Uh, uh, I'm going to tell you a, an embarrassing but funny story to end this so you can understand what I mean. Uh, it's London, 1990-something. <laughs> and um, I'm with a bunch of people, and there's a lot of drugs going on. It's college age, right? And uh, someone gives me um, a pill, and I'm like, sure, whatever. Yeah, let me try it. And I was, a bunch, I was around uh, two jarheads and an Air Force captain. <laughs> they were my nannies. And um, so I take it and I sit down in my own space without people, right? And I'm like, I'm going to go out with these people. They're going down to the Hippodrome. I'm going to go party with them. You can come with me. And so I take this pill, but nothing's happening. So I'm like, I'm going to go get dressed. This is an hour after I took it. So I get dressed. And as I'm getting dressed, I'm brushing my hair. Okay, I'm brushing my hair and um, I'm looking at the mirrors, I'm brushing my hair and I kid you not, I was convinced my hair was shiny, so shiny that the light was reflecting off of it, right? There was nothing you could tell me in that world at that moment that would say that my hair was not shiny. I put on these new Steve Madden boots that were a bit platformed um, so that I can feel taller. Uh, I wore um, a pair of pinstripe uh, skinny pants. Well, no, they, were, they weren't. They were boot cut because they covered the boot. And just a black top, pretty simple. And as I was combing my hair, I oh, I remember there was a... A song in the background and it was talking about flying and so I took the shirt and I was literally waving it around as if it was flying it was the biggest trip in my life um, and the only time that I that I had taken ecstasy ever uh, I found out what it was later see I just took it and I was like I've got nannies they'll take care of me why not this is a great excuse to just try new stuff and blend in with the people that I was supposed to be blending in with so I, my hair is shiny. I see it in the mirror. I'm literally glowing. My eyelashes feel amazing. I didn't do anything. I didn't even put on makeup, you guys. I was just like, I felt I didn't need makeup. My cheeks were rosy. My hair was shiny and everything. And brand new boots, right? They were suede, actually. And even the platform part of it had, was, was suede. I, was, I had picked them up at Oxford Circus on a sale. Um, right next to the top shop shop. Anyway, it was like a Steve Madden shop. Anyway, so um, I let my nannies know that this is where I'm going and I told them the locations that will be so that way they can anticipate me there so we can follow, they can collect information and I can do my job, which was party. 
<laughs> right? And get information. Obviously, I didn't tell them that I was glowing. So I remember uh, going to the place that we were going to meet, which was on a campus. And uh, as I walked down the hallway um, from the housing we had, where a bunch of people, diplomats and whatnot, would stay, I walked down the hallway. Someone said, are you running? And I'm like, what are they talking about? I'm totally not running. Obviously, I was super speed, right? I get to the point where I meet with everyone and everyone's like, you look like you're glowing. I believed that my hair was glowing. And I kid you not, the people that were around me literally thought I was glowing. Now, I was like, maybe they were just high or whatever, but like my hair was so shiny in that mirror. Like I tell you, it was like bling, bling. And people were telling me that. And here's this sober people like the jarhead at the first location, um, came by toward, you know, where we would meet. And, you know, it was like, did you put something in your hair? It looks like it's reflecting. What I wanted <laughs> to point out with this is, is that sometimes what we see in ourselves is projected to the rest. And that's because we attract the cells to us. We keep them bound. What is that glue that doesn't, you know, have your skin cells flying off? What is that glue that doesn't have your heart cells fly around and come off on the frequency? What is that glue that I attracted light to be reflecting off my hair per se? What is that glue? And this is where that comes in. Because even though there's proteins and structural proteins that we can sit there and talk about gap junctions, we could talk about all of these connections, right? Literal connections, ligands, everything. If you take it down to it, they're really never touching. So what is that glue that keeps everything together? What is that glue that makes things fall from the sky down to us? What is that glue that keeps your feet bound to the ground? What is that glue that keeps your cells to you? Because it's all about the glue that keeps things together in an organized way. And that glue is what manifests your constructed reality that overlaps into others. That's what I want you to just Think about on, on the off, you know, on the off, just kind of ponder on it for a second and think, all right, I'm made up of all these cells. I urge you guys to watch a TED Talk by Dr. Bonnie Bassler, who I went to her lab, um, who did this TED Talk. I want to show it, but I'll be struck down and, and shut off. So I urge you guys to find it where she talks about quorum sensing. That's Q-U-O-R-U-M sensing. And that's the bacterial, the, how bacteria talk to each other. You need to see her opening on how she explains the body. Okay? You need to explain, you need to see that because that may give you more of a, of, um, a perspective from, a, uh, I would say, a microscopic perspective to understand, to understand um, what... It is exactly that that glue is. And that is something that allows you to expand. So um, 
Dr. Bonnie Bassler. She's uh, John Hopkins. She actually, um, I was like, I, I have talked about this before, how Agrobacterium tumefaciens is a bacteria that mates with plants. That's why it causes cancer. Hence why I went into plant pathology, uh, because plants are very similar to human uh, DNA uh, to see if there were models there. And while examining that, I realized that there was an exchange of DNA, which I couldn't you know, fathom. And I was like, wait a minute, there's got to be something here. And looking at how bacteria talk, I was like, obviously, there's got to be some conversation here. And then I found that the phenol of Agrobacterium tumefaciens and the phenol of a plant that is being released when it's injured are very similar. And I, and I found that through her lab. So um, it's quite fascinating. Uh, she really dumbs it down. So you don't have to be someone that understands molecular biology, but it's fascinating. Um, and she, and she's quite, quite a force to be reckoned with, um, silenced after um, her... Uh, research, but um, she shows how bacteria talk to each other and how uh, they realize each other's presence before they become virulent or enact um, whatever they're supposed to be doing. And she does this through um, some uh, bacteria that help uh, sea creatures see in the depths of the ocean, which is incredible. Uh, and that's how she found it out. Um, so on that note, gravity. What is that song? There's a song called Gravity, right? I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, I can hear it. I can see myself singing to it. I just don't remember. Gravity. The center of everything. The thing that pulls things together. The thing that stabilizes things. So gravity. Gravity. Do you understand the gravity of the situation? And so we come to this. If gravity can hold cells together, hold your house together, your floor together, your earth together, your moon together, your water together, your everything together, then why is it that it can't hold together your ability to see, hear, and think and prosper on that? Think of glue, the gravity. Think of the gravity of thought. The gravity of thought, the glue in thought. This is where you need to take it to so that you can see what's coming yourself. And that is usually faith. Mm. I've said this how many times? You should walk in faith, not with what you see and hear, but what you feel, that gut that you just don't seem to put your finger on it, but you know this is right and this is wrong. Faith, faith and gravity. Try to see the relationship because this is a quite personal definition and it's not one to spell it out. I mean, look, even the Bible didn't spell things out for you, did it? Right? It was there as a guide, right? Or what they call, what is it, ether? right? Um, or ether, quintessence, fills the region of the universe above the terrestrial sphere. <laughs> it's what I like to call intra or inter filler, intra filler. So um, we'll get back to um, 
the manuscript at some point and those green rocks and the septa. We'll get back to that. But it's not something that should be taught in, as a dogma, but shown as a guide. And, and hence these little tidbits. Because what you're about to see this week, towards the end of the week, happen is going to be something miraculous. And it's important that you can identify that so that you can identify time, relevance, execution, and pattern. Pattern in disarray, not pattern. String of information with a lot of patterns is no information. String of information that doesn't show any relative repetitive patterns has information. You see? How do you pluck that out? So that's where the fun stuff comes. That's where all the good stuff comes. Uh, on that, I wanted to go to, where is it? Hold on a second. I will find it. One last statement. For those of you on Twitch, we're rating um, DJ Steph. And Wednesdays are Tori Says Show after parties. Um, so I wanted to put this one notion of gravity and I wanted you to hear it in respects to the law and what Justice Scalia, he didn't talk about gravity himself, but I want you to think of gravity while you listen to him say this. I want you to think of the concept of gravity, the concept, not gravity itself, the concept. Take a listen. Let her practice for you know a couple more years, get some seasoning. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. You you have to go go into law school, uh, go, go go into the uh, uh, job market in academia. What within two years after you're out, or or somehow your damaged goods, you've been practicing law, <laughs> but, uh, and that's too bad. That is really too bad. I had uh, almost seven years of practice before before I. I went into teaching at the University of Virginia. Uh, so that's changed. And, and I, I think it's, it's partly the bar's fault. The bar, the bar ought to pay more attention to bringing, bringing uh, young professors into the, uh, into the activities of the bar, uh, law reform and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Take a professor to lunch. I tell them that all the time. <laughs> uh, sure, all for that. <laughs> <laughs> What, what did you most enjoy about teaching when you, you know, you, you were taught at you know, the University of Virginia and the University of Chicago? And later at Chicago, yeah. Um, um, I, I um, the, only, the only thing I didn't enjoy was grading the doggone exams. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's still true. I love the classroom. I like to try to explain uh, um, abstruse things and try to make them clear. Uh, um, I, I like the freedom of, of, of researching what I want to research and not, not what some uh, uh, advocate shoves under my nose. Uh, I mean, that's a great luxury. It really is. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, working only four hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
that's a canard. <laughs> yeah, that's what my friends in practice say. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Good news, no, that's all right. Good news. <laughs> well, you only work a few months a year, too. Right? <laughs> we are always in session. I see. Okay. That's true. Okay. Uh, you know, you. Uh, you seem to inspire in some people. I think this is probably people who've never met you because, uh, but I, of those people who have never met you, you seem oftentimes to inspire either love or hate. Why do you think that's so? Is it because you're outspoken? Because you, because you don't lie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 think, um, I think my views are uh, uh, often misrepresented and uh, People have a misimpression of, uh, of of what I what I would do. Um, as a result of which, uh, you know, I, I, I often make a terrific impression because people expect me to have uh, horns and a tail. And when I don't, gee, what a great guy he is! You know, I'm actually not that good, but uh, you know. Uh, I, I blame it on misrepresenting my position. Yeah. Okay. And that I'm sticking with that. All right. All right. So misrepresenting a position, do people gravitate to him in a nice way or a bad way? Misrepresentation, polarization, two opposite ends, twinning, and think of it in the concept of gravity. Ah, how? Well, just ponder it. I mean, cooking, ponder it. Cleaning, ponder it. Driving, just ponder that thought of misrepresentation and the existence of twins. Twins meaning two things representing the opposite. One manifesting the other. There can be no good without evil and no evil without good. Too much good can bring in. Too much evil will then end up as. These are all thoughts you should ponder on. It's, it's not philosophical. It's, it's science right? Science is showing you this. Science, not philosophical, science. And science is based on math, and it is mathematically there. So on that note, for those of you on Twitch, stand by. We will be reading. And those of you on other means, God bless. I will see you tomorrow. Only to be with you Only to be